And if you would turn in your copy of the scriptures to Exodus chapter 3, as we go through a, a narrative, an account of real history this morning, a lot of times we need to step back and, and catch the context a little bit to see where we're coming in here with these verses. So please turn with me, if you would, to Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that way. And when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to the one who did the wrong, Why are you striking your companion? Then he said, well, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared, and he said, surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled, with the face, fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water. And they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. And then the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. And when they came to Ruel, their father, he said, How is it that you have come so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. Then he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. So he said to his daughters, And where is he? Why is it that you have left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Then Moses was content to live with the man, and he gave Zipporah, his daughter, to Moses. And she bore him a son, and he called his name Gershon. For he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of their bondage. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God knew them. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now we all, a lot of times, see our lives going along as a very routine, mundane, sort of day-to-day -day existence many times. And then there are those unusual occasions where God drops a bombshell into our lives that we didn't expect. Uh, one such occasion... In my life was back in 1981. I was a teacher here in town, and I was teaching phys ed for an elementary school, and it was part of a coalition of public schools that had sort of special directions or special uh, nuances to what they were. This was Earhart Environmental Complex, and that's where I taught. And on this particular day, they were having a teacher's in service at Wichita State University. And uh, many of the similar kind of schools were gathered there for this in-service, special kind of schools. And I remember I sat through the morning and it was, as I found many of those meetings to be kind of boring and, and rather mundane and things were going along and it was terribly cold outside, it was icy, I was hoping this would get over and, and get on home. But as the morning wore on, we had lunch and in the afternoon we had uh, the final session and all of the schools were gathered and they had a speaker there. And after the speaker finished, I noticed up at the front of the room there were a couple of lady teachers that I knew from my school, and with them was this other young lady. And I, she was just stunningly beautiful, and uh, I, I didn't know who she was really. And afterwards, the meeting was over, and I, I went on out of the hall, and I sat down in the lobby there, and I was getting my papers together and looking at a few notes and getting ready to leave. And this stunningly beautiful lady came up and asked me what time it was. And I told her, I think it was probably about 3.30. And uh, much to my disappointment, that's all she wanted to know. <laughs> and uh, 
she turned and walked away. But that ended up being the woman that I would spend the next 42 years with. And from that moment on, I talked with her friends and, and found out more about her. And I found out that she also was a young lady that was very committed uh, to Christ and that was seeking to serve him in her church as a single woman. And she just had a great testimony. But my life was radically changed. And, and there was a ripple effect as in any of your lives that went on then to include our seven children and our grandchildren and many relationships that came from that relationship that God gave us. But I was not expecting anything like that when I went to that meeting. Nor was I expecting anything to be a big change. And uh, there was a similar thing in Wichita State uh, back in 2013. I, I was on campus and it was late in the fall and it was getting darker earlier so it was almost dark and I thought well I'm going to give one more tract out before I leave and so I offered a tract to this fellow and he said thank you and uh, we talked just briefly and he had a class he needed to go to and I told him well if you have any questions please give me a call and I gave him my phone number and they said something like well thank you I would like to get back with you but we've heard that hundreds of times and, but this time, by the time I got back to my car, I had a text message giving me his name and saying, when can we meet? And it happened to be a teacher who was there for six months of English intensive training while he was doing research for his PhD, and his name was Chihan. And we began to communicate back and forth, texting, we began to meet, and I invited him to things like uh, David Thacker's piano recital and to events we had at church, and he'd sit at the back sometimes, and he'd come to our home, and we would talk about Christ and the gospel. He would share about Islam, and never did he ever want to push off what I shared, and he was very gracious, and he told me, someday, I want you to come and visit me, and uh, God in his providence worked that out. Two years later, I was going through Istanbul and uh, happened to then get a flight onto this little city called Sivas up in the mountains. And I and my good brother, Anthony, uh, went up there to visit Chihan at his school. And he told me he wanted me to see his, uh, some of his fellow staff members and meet some of them. And so I was thinking we would have a little sit-down meeting with half a dozen of the faculty and talk about everything from Western civilization to food to what politics, whatever it might be. And Anthony and I got off the plane and, and Chihan picked us up, took us to his home. His new wife prepared us a great meal. And we went downtown and we went to this office building and we got in the elevator and went up four floors. And some of you have heard this story before, but when the door opened, there in these cubby holes were about 40-some pairs of shoes. And we realized there's a lot of people here. And we went into that meeting and there were some 40 students, 35 or 40 students and faculty members gathered together. They greeted us graciously. They sat in a big circle then and they said to us, we want to give you an hour to explain to us what you believe. And so from that moment on for the next 60 minutes, we started in Genesis and we went through the Old Testament up to the fulfillment of the of the Messiah and Jesus Christ and the Gospels. Question and answers then after that for another 45 minutes or so. And then the next day we went back to the campus and uh, we met in four different groups, anywhere from six to a dozen people for lunch and coffee and tea and shared the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And I remember calling Sherry that night from this little hotel in uh, Sivas, Turkey, saying, this is the most amazing night of my life. I have been given the opportunity that missionaries die for and it just happened to us and it all began back in a little night Tuesday night on the Wichita State campus as the sun was going down and I just decided to give it one more tract out and that friendship with Jihan has continued as many of you have heard he was imprisoned then because he wasn't part of the right political Muslim party there and he spent three years in prison and we followed up, we helped his wife somewhat and then even in our most recent trip to Lebanon when we came back we were to meet in the Frankfurt airport but unfortunately because of flight delays and stuff we only talked on the phone but we continued to talk but I had no idea what God would open up on that night and God in both of those situations did something amazing but what we're going to see this morning 
It's like a tiny little pebble of sand on Mount Rushmore or on uh, Mount Everest for our Nepali friends. It's like a tiny pebble on there compared to what happens this morning. When we see what takes place here, the ripple effect 3,500 years ago over the lives of millions and millions and millions of people by what encounter God makes with this man Moses. The day this account takes place, it begins like any other day for Moses. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. You see, Moses is a steward, shepherd. These are not even his own sheep. And he's been following these sheep, leading these sheep, taking them for 40 years on the backside of the desert. It's a far cry from his first 40 years growing up in the luxury and sophistication of Egyptian royalty. The former prince of Egypt, he held the keys to the treasures of Egypt. Now he's humbly watching over sheep that belong to someone else. Jethro is mentioned here. It's Raul, who we read about in chapter 2. He's Moses' father-in-law. And through the rest of the book of Exodus, he will be known as Jethro. Strangely, he is referred to as the priest of Midian. Uh, Not a lot is known about what type of priesthood this was. But later on in Exodus, we see Jethro. He offers up wise and he offers up godly counsel to the men of Israel and to his son-in-law Moses. So he appears to be a man who really knows the one true God. And then we have Horeb. And brothers, if you could bring that up. This mountain is more commonly known to most of us as Mount Sinai. Horeb may also be the name of the region where this mountain is located. It was somewhere in the southern part of the Sinai Peninsula. But its precise location is unknown. And up there you see the two red circles. Some feel it's right there on the peninsula. Others have seen it over here on the other side uh, where Jethro, Midian and that where it says Exodus chapter 3. So it's somewhere in that area but they really don't know for sure where Mount Sinai is or Horeb. But Moses gives us a label and he calls it the mountain of God. Now some historians speculate it may have had other religious significance prior to God meeting Moses there. But it undoubtedly becomes the mountain of God because of the future work that God does. For example, when Moses returns to Egypt from Midian, he will meet Aaron there on that mountain. God will again meet Moses on Mount Horeb or Sinai when Israel exits Egypt and God gives him the law. It is the mountain of God. Now for 40 years of shepherding on the desert have passed since Moses fled for his life from Egypt. We know little about what has gone on in the life and especially in the mind and the heart of this man. Once a prince of Egypt but ending up now herding sheep in obscurity for the past four decades. But all this was about to take a drastic turn. The great challenge this morning for me is how do you adequately convey the mundane routine of a desert shepherd with the dramatic radical life change that will become the most talked about man and event in all of Jewish history. That is about what is to unfold here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we plead with you that you would Speak to us through your word. Father, you spoke through a burning bush. And yet you have given us your word, which you have said is living and powerful. And sharper than a two-edged sword. And it pierces even a dividing soul and spirit and joints and marrow. And judges the thoughts and intents of the heart. Lord, please use your word this morning. Where I am fully, completely inadequate to convey the depth of what happens here. Your word is not. And it is empowered by your spirit. And we pray, Lord, that you would show us who you are this morning. In this moment in the life of Moses. Lord, may it, may it grip us 
and change us and help us, Lord, so that we would know you and worship you and fear you and honor you more than we ever have in our lives, Lord. Let, like, like Spurgeon said, let, let your word out of the cage that it would devour any false concepts that we've had, any apathy that we've had. And Lord, feed us, cut us with that sword and lay us open and speak. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Verse 2, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but that bush was not consumed. Yahweh's appearance to Moses comes in the form of the bush, a bizarre fire, and a voice. Within it all, we see and read of the angel of the Lord. Literally, this is the messenger of Yahweh. Now, in verse 4, we will realize that God is revealing himself to Moses here in a visible form. It is called a theophany. It means an appearance of God. In his divine essence, God is spirit and therefore invisible. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17 tells us, Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise. But in the Old Testament, in order to help men grasp who he is, at times God made men visibly aware of his presence. A.B. Davidson said, The angel is not a created angel. He is Jehovah himself in manifestation, identical with Jehovah, although also different. Riken wrote, the angel is revealed as the merciful accommodation or condescension of God, whereby the Lord can be present among a sinful people when, were he to go with them himself, his presence would consume them. We can put it this way. The angel suffers no reduction or adjustment of his full deity, yet he is that mode of deity whereby the holy God can keep company with sinners. That in itself is a divine paradox that we cannot really solve. God who is holy, completely, perfectly, righteously holy, ablaze in this holiness in which anything that would step even closer would disintegrate yet brings men into his presence. Barton Payne says, these revelations of the unique angel can be appreciated only when understood as a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. This manifestation of God, it was burning, but it was not consumed. I want some help here. What are the three ingredients necessary for a fire? Oxygen is one, right. What's another? Fuel, Fuel, right. And heat. If I've got it right, I think that's a triangle. Oxygen, fuel, and heat. Fire consumes fuel. Things like wood, or paper, or gasoline. As the fuel is consumed, the fire lessens and will eventually go out. But not this fire. It burned and burned and burned. It blazed and it was dependent upon nothing but the will of its creator. And then Moses, in response, said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight. Why the bush does not burn. In 40 years of shepherding, He has never seen anything like this. And so when the Lord saw that Moses turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Yahweh's introduction begins with intimacy. Yahweh's intimacy. The Lord, God, angel of the Lord, speaks to him personally. I was deeply moved by the fact that God calls out his name. 
Moses, Moses. We don't know the population of the earth at that time. It was certainly millions, uh, likely billions. All of them made in the image of God. But in this moment, God speaks directly and personally to this lone man, isolated on a desert mountain. All focus is upon him. And that man quickly replies back, Here I am. We know that other prophets will follow his example. Young Samuel answered exactly the same way when he was called by God in the night. First Samuel chapter 3, verse 4. Then the Lord called Samuel and he said, Here I am. Isaiah also, he boldly declared before the image of God or for the vision of God, Here I am. And then God said to him, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place where you stand is holy ground. He introduces now his holiness. Yahweh's holiness. This place is holy. Now the dirt and the stones where Moses stood possessed nothing unique that made them holy. This was not a holy place in and of itself. Not even the bush that was burning, that was flaming, was holy. Except for the fact that God had determined they would be that way. Because God was present all that was there became holy. It was holy because God set it apart from all else that existed in that moment in the universe. God was present. But we read that he was uniquely inapproachable. Moses, you can come no closer. Now is there a six foot social distancing barrier around the presence of God? We certainly had enough of that nonsense for a couple of years. No, there is not. But on the other hand, again, think through. This, this is such an amazing passage with things that are difficult to grasp. On the other hand, God was gracious to allow Moses to come into his presence at all. You see, in the infinite holiness of God, ablaze with righteousness, there is no place in the entire creation that is distant enough for man to exist in the presence of the holy God. You could not be far enough away and still exist if it wasn't for the grace of God. Because His holiness is infinite. It extends everywhere. And it is perfect and pure. You could not be far enough away to be safe. But in His common grace, God allows men and women who have been cleansed by the holiness, who have been cleansed to holiness by faith in Christ, as well as those who have not to continue to exist in a universe where he is present. That, my friends, is one of the examples of the gracious grace of God that any of us continue to exist, that the most vile atheist and idolater continue to exist on this planet knowing that our God is present and sees their every move, their every thought. That is the grace of God that any of us continue. Yet the gospel of Christ affords us God's grace that allows us to enter the presence of God in a precious way, in a way even unknown at that moment to Moses, yet to be enjoyed by God's children someday and even now. Hebrews 4, verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us, therefore, come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Brothers and sisters, we can come boldly into the very presence of God to His throne, right up to Him. Why? Not because we've cleaned up our act or in any way have made ourselves holy. We can come because the high priest has made us holy, taken our sin from us and offered His body as a sacrifice. He has cleansed us and made us holy. Romans 8, verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. 
For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We have been given the greatest of all privileges to come into this presence of this Holy One that is now in this portion of the Scripture speaking to Moses through a flaming fire bush. Here on Mount Horeb, God graciously allows Moses uniquely into his near presence. Why? Because he has chosen him. And he will be with him in ways no other man has ever known. Yet even Moses, even Moses must understand that he is in the presence of the Holy, Holy, Holy Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth. He is given a very simple command to acknowledge that he gets it, that he understands this. Take off your sandals, Moses. The Lord's command, says Riken, signifies first his desire that Moses should be enabled to remain standing on holy ground. God desires him to be there. And secondly, it gives the conditions necessary for that to take place. It would appear, says Riken, that God desires us to be in his presence. Amen. Why would he do such a thing? Why would he come to this nobody on the backside of a mountain who's been spending the last 40 years walking with sheep, taking care of what belongs to his father-in-law. He came to him. He spoke to him. He has brought him into his presence. Verse 6, Moreover, he, God, said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Yahweh's history. Yahweh has a history with his people. He points to the fact that he is the God of Moses' people from their inception. He called his forefather Abraham out of the city of Ur. He made a covenant with him, which he confirmed then to his son Isaac and then to his grandson Jacob in succession. God will remind Moses and Israel of this generational history at least eight times throughout the book of Exodus. It is very significant. This is the God who has always been their God. He already picked this up in Exodus chapter 2 verse 24. So God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. This is significant. It will also be used by Jesus in the New Testament. Jesus will use this to defend the resurrection of the dead to unbelieving religious leaders like the Sadducees. In Luke chapter 20 verse 37, Jesus says, But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage. Isn't that unique? The same passage we're reading, Jesus is referring the Sadducees to the burning bush passage, which we are reading, that the dead are raised when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For all live to him. Peter, he identifies the God of miraculous power in Acts chapter 3, verse 12. So when Peter saw it, he had just healed this man. He responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. Stephen, Stephen will remind those who are about to murder him of this generational commitment of God. When Moses, and he, he cites this passage, and Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I repeat those sessions over through the New Testament so that we grip. This is not just something you pass over because we're not Jewish. And it means little to us. It means something. It is significant and it is repeated over and over again through the Old Testament into the New Testament. Here we are also confronted. And we are confronted with a truth that is abhorred by popular religion in our day. It is shunned and despised even in many churches. 
traditional, traditional and contemporary churches. You see, Yahweh is fearsome. He is frightening. He is unnerving. He is even terrifying in His holiness. It says Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look upon God. He was afraid to look upon Him. On several occasions of sharing the gospel of Christ, men and women have boasted that if they stand before God, they will give Him a piece of their mind or they will tell God where to get off or question His authority or His wisdom. Now, we all have times of frustration or disappointment with why or what God does, but let me guarantee you this. Such a discussion will never take place. Joshua chapter 5. Look what happens. Verse 13, And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? So he said, No, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped him and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. How did Joshua respond? He was pretty up front at the beginning, aggressive. And then he falls to the ground. He says, what does my Lord say to his servant? Gideon, Judges chapter 6, 22. Now Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. So Gideon also said, alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Then the Lord said to him, Peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Gideon in the presence of God feared what? That he would die. That's how it struck him. Manoah, Samson's father, Judges chapter 13. It happened as the flame went up toward the heaven from the altar. The angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. And when Manoah and his wife Samson's parents saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. And when the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife, then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die because we have seen God. Nobody is going to question God about who he is or what he has done. We will question him Perhaps, will you let us live? What would you have me do? Isaiah, he is especially distraught. Read his reaction here in Isaiah chapter 6. Turn with me there. Isaiah chapter 6. And I will, as you're turning there, I just want to put a plug in. If you want to hear a tremendous exposition of this passage and see the holiness of God brought through expositional preaching, uh, look up R.C. Sproul's message on Isaiah chapter 6. It, it will grip you. It's amazing. I will not come close to that, but it's an amazing story. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two He covered His face. With two He covered His feet. And with two He flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of Him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King. The Lord of hosts. Woe is me. For I am undone. The word undone. Means to cease. To cut off. To perish. It it has the the essence of the word disintegrate. And, And our bodies are an amazing integration. Of cells. Of all sorts of framework and systems. 
that God has put together. And, and what Elijah, I mean, Isaiah is saying, everything is coming apart. I will be completely disintegrated in your presence. That is this God, Yahweh, that has appeared to Moses. John in Revelations 1, verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Hebrews 12, 28, 29. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 10, 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The fearsomeness of God is not an insignificant nor unfortunate attribute, attribute that we have to watch out for. It is front and center. It is essential and is repeated many times in Scripture. It is a key component of living an abundant life in Christ. Jehoshaphat spoke to his judges that he appointed in Second Chronicles 19. He said, Now therefore, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Job quotes God and he says, And to man he, God said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. Psalm 19 verse 9, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Proverbs 10 27, The fear of the Lord prolongs days. Proverbs 14 27, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. Proverbs 23 17, do not let your heart envy sinners, but be zealous for the fear of the Lord all the day. Do you pray daily for the fear of the Lord? Isaiah 33, verse 6. The fear of the Lord is His treasure. This fearsome, holy God is at the same time full of compassion. How does such a uh, an, an eternity, an infinity of both dwell in one being. That is our God. He is full of compassion. In verse 7, he goes on and says, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. He has seen the oppression. He has heard their cry. And he knows intimately their sorrows. Yahweh knows. Out of deep love, God calls Israel here, my people. He is fully aware of the anguish of their slavery. Four centuries have passed since the last record of God's presence. Israel multiplied abundantly. It prospered greatly in Egypt. However, at some point... Their good living began to sour on the Egyptians. Their prosperity became a threat and it spawned hatred and fear. Pharaohs, plural, had plotted to weaken and destroy them, but God had only made them stronger and greater in number. So the question, why such hardship? Suffering had become unbearable. Lives had been lost. Generations came and passed and were buried in the graves of Egypt. Why? The suffering of Israel apparently was not a result of sin. It really is a mysterious question. Scripture does not tell us of any worship of Egyptian idols or of the people conforming to pagan lifestyles. Scripture only tells us that the Israelites prospered and multiplied greatly and then suffered intensely under the Egyptian pharaohs. And it tells us that all of this was fully known to God even before it occurred. Several centuries earlier in Genesis chapter 15, Yahweh actually spoke to Abraham and he said, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, in Egypt, and will serve them as slaves, and they will afflict them 400 years. This is back in Genesis 15. God knew it was coming and it was part of his providence, his sovereignty. 
We read there in verse 14, And all the, also the nations whom they serve I will judge. And after they shall come out with great possessions. But in the fourth generation they shall return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. There's some clues there. When, but you see when Jacob brought his family. His family of 75 people to Egypt to join his son Joseph. He did so with God's blessing. He wasn't going where he wasn't supposed to go. We read in Genesis 46, Then God spoke to Israel, or to Jacob, in the visions of the night, and He said, Jacob, Jacob. And He said, Here I am. If you ever hear your name called out, remember the reply. Here I am. So He said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. So they went under God's blessing and, and direction. One of the commentators wrote this concerning Jacob's blessed journey down to Egypt. And he said, quote, He went into a situation where the grace of God had anticipated his needs by sending Joseph ahead. He had, however, also embarked on a journey that led eventually to slavery, suffering, and the attempted extinction of his descendants. And during those long, long years of distress, heaven above them remained silent. Even when the promise of rescue was finally fulfilled, no explanation was ever offered of the years of pain and loss. This is the mystery of the divine government of history, whether on a national, domestic, or individual level. The great, loving God is in control, and because He is truly sovereign, he works out his purposes in his ways, not ours. He offers no explanations, but grants his people a sufficient insight into his ways, his character, his intentions, and his changeless faithfulness, so that however dark the day, they can live by faith and be sustained by hope. End quote. That is reality. We do not know oftentimes the suffering that comes our way. We can look back and perhaps say, well, it did this or, or it hardened or prepared us. But we don't know oftentimes. But God does. And it is in His hand. And we saw He had prophesied about it. And He led His people right into it because He knew it was best. In His providence, perfect in justice and love, God had determined now to act. In response to the horrific suffering of His children, Yahweh has come down, he says. Now that little phrase alone changes everything. The game is over. God has arrived and justice will roll down. Yahweh has come down. And he has come down now to bring his people up. Yahweh's response. When he delivers, he delivers out of. Verse 8 says to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And he delivers them into to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. God makes it clear that the promised land is land indeed and that it is land well inhabited and well taken care of. It is extremely fertile and it is fruitful. So he delivers out of and into and because of. The deliverance because of the cry of the children of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Yes, he is fulfilling his covenant promise. But the timing is that he has heard this cry and it has moved him. And in his sovereign providential plan, he will act. When God delivers, it is delivery from something to something for a reason. It is what he did when he sent his son Jesus Christ. The antitype of Moses. The original. In Christ Jesus God came down. To bring his children up. John chapter 1 verse 14. And the word became flesh. And it dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the father. Full of grace and truth. 1 John 4 9. And this the love of God was manifested toward us. That God has sent. Sent down his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. And he delivered into 
Colossians 1 verse 13. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. We've been delivered out of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 12 through 13. That at that time you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise having no hope and without God in the world. Now we may not identify with the first of those few being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of the promise. We should and there's more for us there. But we certainly know what it means to have no hope and to be without God. And we need to remember that. That when Christ came down, He came to deliver us from hopelessness and alienation from God. And why did He do that? Romans 6 verse 22. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Colossians 1 verse 21. You who once were alienated and enemies. You who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. Yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That is who we are and this is who we are now. It's hard for me to imagine God presenting Kent to the Father as holy, blameless, and above reproach. But he has done that through his son, Jesus Christ. And I have his righteousness, not my own. If that is foreign to you, we ask that you would seek Christ so that you would know him and you would experience new life through repentance and faith in Jesus. If you have any questions, please do not hesitate to ask one of our elders or some of the brothers and sisters here who follow Christ. We want you to know this. Christ came down to set you free. I stopped the passages rather than doing the whole chapter this morning because there was just so much. And the beginning of this introduction of Yahweh to Moses is so crucial. We know that Moses was sitting there. He, had, he was not having a quiet time on the west side of the mountain. He was herding sheep. He was doing his thing. And God came to him and introduced himself. That is so crucial. I've had, I think, four conversations this week with people talking about this very necessity of knowing God if we're going to minister for God. Knowing God if we're going to live for him. We must know him. We must spend time with him. We must understand who he is. We must allow him to expose himself to us in his word so that we in some way begin to grasp what was blazing before Moses. There was a quote in one of the commentaries and it's rather lengthy but it's about this concept that we must be with God and and we're going to close with this. Exodus is very clear about where true Christian service begins. It begins in the presence of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I am sending you to Pharaoh But before he sent him out, he brought him in and let him stand in his presence and commune with his God. I'm going to say that again. Before he sent him out, he brought him in and let him stand in his presence and commune with his God. The biblical preparation of service is always that we be found in the presence of the Lord. We could follow this principle right through the Bible. Why was John the Baptist in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel? Why did Paul go away into Arabia before he ventured into missionary service? Why did the Lord Jesus spend 40 days in the wilderness pondering the book of Deuteronomy? Before we go out, we must come in. And so we see how the Lord brought Moses into the secret place of communion with himself prior to sending him out to Israel and Pharaoh. Are you experiencing the secret place of communion with God? 
The Lord has a training school. He says, come into my presence. Satan will, of course, always seek to reverse that procedure, reminding us all the time of the needs of the world and of the desperate necessity to get on with the work. The Lord, however, is saying, just wait a bit. I'm not in your sort of hurry. Come and linger in my presence. Satan says, no, think of the needy world. There are souls to be saved because he wants us to go out onto the battlefield unarmed. He does not mind one bit if we go out to the Lord's battles, provided that we have no hope of winning when we get there. But the Lord says, no, come and stand with me for a bit. Come and listen to me. Service begins in the presence of the Lord, spending time alone with God. Spending time alone with God. There was something about Peter and John. Acts 4.13 says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would call us near to you. Father, some of us struggle. Our, our times with you sometimes seem stuffy and, and uneventful. And we try to squeeze in what we can. Lord, there's something that you're showing us here in your word that you desire us to be in your presence in communion with you, in devotion to you. Lord, I, as I've said before, Father, we need your help in this desperately. There are mothers here whose hands are full from the moment they wake up to a crying infant until they tuck that child into bed and speak with their husbands late at night. There are men who leave the home before dark and get home after sunset, working hard days, and then their families needing them. Lord, yet we need you. We need you more than anything. So Lord, please come into the hearts in, in our lives in ways that, that we may, perhaps we've never experienced. Speak to us, Lord, from your word. Make it alive to us. Help us to understand it and give us a determination that we will hold onto that word and be there and come over and over again until we hear you. Lord, please move in the hearts of us that we will be men and women who then go forth filled with the Spirit of God who know you and love you and proclaim Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. As I pray, it almost sounds like, Lord, help us to do this duty. Thank you that you would even call us to this. We who deserve nothing and yet have been invited into the presence of Yahweh, the Lord of Sabaoth, the King of eternity, the King of the universe. Lord, work in our hearts. Use us. May Christ be glorified this week in the lives of each one here that knows and loves you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.